You are listening to the City on a Hill Sermon Podcast. For more information about our church and to support this ministry, visit cityonahilldfw.com. Thank you. Good morning. Boy, was Shemika rocking this morning or what? Her mama was standing out there just proud as she could be. You know it. She can't uh, stand to stand inside here, and she gets real nervous when Shemika's doing a solo like that, so she stands just outside the door. Yep. And uh, Cherie's mama's name, so you can give Cherie a hard time. I've got to tell you this story, okay? This is, this is so great. Last night, I did a, a Zoom interview uh, from a national ministry in, that's based out of Baltimore, Maryland. And they asked me to do this Zoom interview, and it's broadcast all over. I don't know how many people were, were on it, but it was about the Fearless Series for Women, but it's also about the concept of the hospital church. They wanted me to explain that, what that looks like, and how it works. And I wish I, this had happened last week so I could tell them the story. But I, I talked about the illustration of the hospital gown that we use around here, that we ought to all just put our hospital gown on and untie it and leave it open in the back, you know, and hiding nothing, just transparent. So a while I go, and I'm going to tell the story with anonymously because I didn't ask her permission to tell it, but <laughs> I'll, I'll tell the other part. Dean and Joanna Spurlock, uh, Dean is a retired attorney, and uh, they have a long-term ministry to the jails here. They go down and teach Bible studies. And uh, <clears throat> so I saw Joanna walk up and talk to one of our women who was at the desk greeting people this morning coming in. And after Joanna walked away, I walked up to this woman, which I will not name because I have not asked her permission. And, and I said, Joanna, man, what a woman. She is such a neat woman. And she said, yeah, I met her in jail. <laughs> and... and uh, and I knew this, I knew that she'd been in jail, I just didn't know this story. And uh, she said, yeah, I had come to City on a Hill one time before I got arrested. And then, then Joanna came down there and she was teaching a Bible study in my cell, in my unit, and uh, she was doing a great job. So I asked her, I said, I said, where do you go to church? And Joanna said, well, I go to City on a Hill. And she said, well, so do I. <laughs> She'd only been here one time, but this was her church, yeah. and now it is her church. And, and what, a, what a great story. Yeah. What a great story. Yeah. A great story for this woman and transformation. A great story for Joanna and, and Dean, what they do. Uh, you, never, you never know what impact you're going to have. No but question. I thought that is a hospital church story. That's us. That's us. <laughs> you probably wouldn't hear that story anywhere else but here. And I love to hear that kind of story. You, might, is... you, you might hear it other places. It just wouldn't be celebrated. Yeah, they wouldn't be, it, the pastor wouldn't do it as no. an introduction to his They'd sermon. Go, we need to clamp things down. We've got all these crazy people <laughs> among us. <laughs> he said, what church you go to, Joanne? I said, I go to City Hill on the Hill. And she said, well, I do too. <laughs> and now she does. She actually really does. So anyway, I, I just thought that was hilarious. That's fantastic. That's a great, that's that's a great story. Fantastic. Take your Bibles and turn to Jude as we are studying verse by verse through the book of Jude in your New Testament just before the book of Revelation is this little one-chapter book that is just packed so powerfully with information. Our text this morning is Jude verse 12 and 13. Now, the title of the message this morning is When Nature Calls. Now, when you heard that title, you either thought of Jim Carrey or you thought of a trip to the outhouse. One of the two, probably. And both of them would have missed what the title means. 
What the title means is that nature does call out. Nature is screaming out. The scripture says that over and over and over. The problem is that we are often unwilling to listen to what nature has to say. In Romans 1.20, Paul says that the, na- the, the, the heavens declare God's creation. He says, for since the creation of the world, God's invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. Psalm 19.1 Talks, that nature talks about his character. The heavens call out about the glory of God. He's glorious, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Psalm chapter 8, verses 3 and 4 talks about his compassion toward us. He says, when I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you would take thought of him? How compassionate you are to take thought of us, O Lord, and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than than the the angels, and you crown him with glory and majesty. So over and over and over, the Scripture tells us that nature is calling out. It is calling out to us. Nature speaks to us. Now, we're in this series in Jude that we've called Contentious Christianity because Jude is giving a warning to these Christ followers. In verse 4, he warns them that there are some that have crept into your midst, and they are apostates. They are bringing with them false doctrine. And in verse 3, he says, and you must contend with them. You must contend with false doctrine. You must contend for the faith. Mm. Now, Apostates are those that had been exposed to the truth but had never fully embraced the truth of God. And now they are seeking to lead others who are genuinely in the faith to lead them astray from the, from the, the doctrines of the faith. And Jude has just repeatedly been making this case. He's just been making a case over and over and over about what apostates do and what these Christ followers must do. He, said, he reminds them, Right off at the beginning, how God responds to rebellion out of their own history. He, re, he, he reminds him of the disbelieving children of Israel that an entire generation of them perished in the wilderness for their disbelief. About the disobedient angels of heaven, verse 6, how they are now bound. God has bound them in chains for eternity. And about the debauched people of Sodom and Gomorrah in verse 7 where God destroyed them for their debauchery. And then he, last week, he, he, he talked about how apostates act, okay, in verses 7 through 11. And Jude gives six images that we covered last week. Could have been, we could have been a week on each one of those, and there were Easily. six of them. He says, these apostates, they reject biblical truth, and once they do that, then the sky's the limit for where they're going to go. That leads them to reject biblical morality. That, then they reject spiritual authority. Then they reject the biblical way of salvation. Then they reject all biblical values. And then they destroy unity within the midst of Mm. God's people. Mm. And that's why Jude is saying to these Christians, you must point them out and you must contend with them and you must contend for the faith. It gets better. This morning, Jude goes to his third, uh, if you will, proof And and that is about nature. It's about how nature calls us and how we even learn these these lessons, he says, from nature itself about what apostates are and about what they offer to genuine Christ followers. What can they give you and where will they take you? And his end conclusion is that they always promise what they cannot 
deliver. And he gives us five illustrations from nature. And the first one Derek is going to deal with, that he says that these people are deceptive like hidden rocks. The first attribute he gives is, yeah, they're deceptive. They're, they're not what they seem like on the surface. On the surface, they seem like one thing, but there's something else going on under that is different. They have no integrity. Look at verse 12. It says, these are hidden reefs at your love feast. As they feast with you without fear, shepherds feeding themselves. Now, if you're reading that, how many of you are reading the NIV out of curiosity? A lot of, probably a lot of readers of the NIV. Good translation. So just want to say solid translation. Doesn't really get this one right. Um, uh, <laughs> Just to be clear. It, he gives it, the compliment, then the stab. Yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> if you're reading the IV, it, it likely says blemishes, blemishes or stains. And that is because the two words are very similar. The Greek word spilaz, uh, with an alpha at the end, uh, means a sharply cleft rock, a sharply cleft rock. Later literature in the Greek world connects that word to a word that looks very similar, spilos, which is a word that means blemishes or stains. And, and if you follow New Testament traditions, Jude and First and Second Peter are often lumped together. And so Second uh, Peter 2.13, Peter describes these same apostate people, and he uses spilos there, calls them stains, they're blemishes. And so it's likely that the NIV translators saw that connection. I don't, I mean, it's not necessarily a problem, but I think probably the right understanding of it is spilos, a sharp a sharply cleft rock. The ancient audience would have understood exactly what these kinds of rocks were, especially if they had any sort of nautical experience. They were hard to see, uh, they were jagged, they were under the water, mm -hmm. and if you were in a boat and you hit one just right, it would sink you. How many, how many of you remember the story of the Odyssey? Yeah, the Odyssey. More how, oh, brother, where art oh, thou? Oh, brother, where art thou? A little modern retelling of the Odyssey. In the Odyssey, there's a, a part in that story where Odysseus and his men are traveling across sea, and they have to pass by where the mythological sirens are. Those you remember are the sirens. The sirens, <laughs> yes, the sirens. Uh, and, and, and if you remember, these are these awful sort of angelic-like creatures that sing the song, and because of their music and their voice, they draw in, they almost put you under a spell, and draw you towards the island where they are, and as you approach the island, there are these sharply cleft rocks under the water mm -hmm. that shipwreck you and uh, ultimately likely kill you. Either that or you're taken prisoner and, and eventually die on the island. Now, of course, that's all mythology, but the rocks are not. The rocks are very real threats to people who are traveling by sea. And the audience knew this. And so Jude is pulling on imagery here from nature, from the ocean, that people would have absolutely understood. Now, come back to the context for a minute and see what Jude is applying it to. He, he's talking about love feasts or agape feasts. That's the, the other way we, it's the Greek word agape there, uh, which were these large meals, very celebratory meals that Christians participated in that often ended in the Lord's Supper. Very important meals mm -hmm. for ancient Christians. Christians during this time, they were hunted, they were persecuted, they were murdered. And so to be able to gather with others, to kind of drop your guard a little bit, you never knew who you could trust, right, out in the community. Mm -hmm. So to be able to come to an agape feast, kind of drop your guard, relax, celebrate, enjoy the unity that you have with other Christians is a very big deal. It was kind of the ancient part of... Uh Precursor of the modern-day uh, covered dish. Yes, yes, yeah, absolutely, yeah. yeah. 
the which the which the Baptist took to the fellowship hall eventually in a uh, <laughs> yeah. it's the same thing, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. So so what Jude is saying here is that when you go to these agape feasts, your temptation is going to be to drop your guard and to enjoy your fellowship, enjoy your unity. And what he's saying is these false apostate people are in your midst, even at your love feasts. Mm-hmm. He's saying you're going to come to these feasts, you're going to drop your guard, you're going to enjoy yourself, and you need to be aware these people are sharply cleft rocks hidden underneath the surface, and they will destroy you when you get near them. Mm. Even in the love feasts, they will harm you. They seem genuine, but they're counterfeit. They seem trustworthy, but they will devour you. And notice he says that they're, they're like shepherds feeding themselves. The shepherds should feed the sheep. That's, the, that's yeah. the role. That's their purpose. But those who have rejected God's truth, they're only interested in feeding themselves. Now, it may not seem very apparent to you, but this is actually a, an allusion to an Old Testament passage. It's a reference to Ezekiel 34.8. Ezekiel 34.8, God says, As I live, declares the Lord God, surely because my flock has become a prey, my flock has even become food for all the beasts of the field for a lack of a shepherd. And my shepherds did not search for my flock, but rather, check this out, the shepherds fed themselves and did not feed my sheep. Now, God goes on to say in Ezekiel's uh, uh, 34th chapter that one day he is going to bring another shepherd. He says in verses 23 and 24, I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he will feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd. And I... The Lord will be their God, and my servant David shall be prince among them. Anyone want to take a guess at who that prince, the, ser- the servant of David is? Jesus. Jesus. That's the Amen. old Sunday school There's answer, right? You got it right. Just say Jesus. You're going to be right. This is why in Matthew's gospel, he's called the son of David. It's why in John's gospel, he says, I am the good shepherd. Jesus feeds his sheep. He dies for his sheep. But these false teachers, they starve the sheep. Jesus is not deceptive. You get exactly what he says you will get. But these false teachers, they're deceptive like hidden rocks. They'll sink you and they will devour you because they are deceptive. Mm. They're not what is on the surface. Second, they're disappointing like dry clouds. Is Jude trying to say that everyone that's in church Sunday morning is not a Christian? Yep. In fact, he's kind of saying that the wheat and the tares that Jesus talked about, Mm. that there are tares. We're going to get there. That they're, oh, you are going to get, get there. there. Okay, there's false shepherds yes. who don't feed yes. the sheep but feed on the sheep. Yes. Wow. Get that. Woo. Now, put that I'm, on a coffee mug. Am yeah, I put right? that. <laughs> Feeding on the sheep. Uh, the second thing he says, the second illustration, he says, they're, not only are they deceptive like hidden rocks that they want to shipwreck you, but he says they are disappointing like dry clouds. And I love this. And in, a, in an agrarian culture, anyone would have understood this imagery. Verse 12, he says they are like clouds without water carried along by the winds. Now, we live in the days of modern farming where so much of modern farming is done by irrigation. They drill a well and they put a pump on it and they have the irrigation that goes across. In fact, it's almost automated most of the time nowadays. You don't even have to move uh, the irrigation pipe like we did when I was a kid. But so it just kind of goes across and it's constantly watering the crop no matter what the weather is like. And it's very expensive, but a farmer can always, who can irrigate, can always count on a healthy crop no matter if they're in the middle of drought or whatever it is. But some farmers 
Today, even still, all farmers back in that day were what were called dry farmers. They depended upon the rain that came from the clouds to water their crops. They didn't have irrigation possibilities. Today, even today, some farmers still do dry farming even in the age of irrigation. And so those farmers totally, completely depend upon the rain that comes out of the clouds to water their crops. Recently, I was driving back from Colorado. Doing, I was up there doing a conference, and, and when I, driving back, I came through cotton country. And it was beautiful because the cotton was ready to be harvested. I mean, the bowls had opened, and the beautiful white cotton was out there. But you'd go by one field, and you would see, man, these huge plants and these giant cotton bowls that were open. And then the next one would be about half that size. And the difference was that one of them was a dry farmer and the other was farming by irrigation. And so the dry farmer who didn't have irrigation, he was completely and totally dependent upon the rain coming from the clouds. And this year in cotton country, they didn't have a great deal of rain. You see, a cloud is nothing but condensed moisture that by heat has been evaporated, caught up into the up into the sky, and then in that atmosphere, it's been cooled down, and it's come back together and collected together by the wind, and it creates a cloud. A cloud is just simply a system of moisture. And when that, when that water gets so dense in the cloud, then it's heavy enough that it drops back to the earth. And so the imagery that Jude is giving is of a farmer who's got a crop in the field and his entire livelihood is dependent upon that crop and he has to have water. And so the farmer goes out and he looks on the horizon and there are clouds beginning to gather on the horizon. And the wind is blowing the clouds in his direction. And so he watches all day long these clouds with hope that there's going to be refreshing nourishment for his crop. But as that cloud passes over the top, there is no rain because, you see, it's an empty cloud. It doesn't have enough moisture in it that it's heavy enough yet for it to be able to drop and nourish his crops. Now, that is what Jude says these apostates are like. They're like clouds that have no water. They promise you what they cannot Produce. Like that farmer looking at that cloud, there's this promise of rain. There's this promise of water on his crops. But when it gets there, that cloud cannot produce what it promised because it doesn't have enough water. They provide, they promise life, but they bring death. They promise nourishment but there's, and fulfillment, but they bring starvation and hunger. Are you getting this? Are you getting this, folks? This is so important because in our world, as we go through our our, our lives, culture is always promising us, if you just come after us, if you'll just, you know, get away from that Bible stuff and come after us, we're going to give you everything that you want in life. And Jude is saying that is a cloud without rain. It cannot produce what it promises. I remember hearing the story of a pastor in a small community. He saw a man named Sam, who was a member of his church, in the grocery store and Sam hadn't been in church in a while, and so the pastor goes up and says, Sam, I haven't seen you in church in a while. And Sam says, well, you know, pastor, it's been raining, you know, a good bit on the weekends, on Sundays. And the pastor says, yeah, but it's dry down at the church. And Sam says, well, and that's another reason that I don't go. (laughs) (laughs) So sometimes, I mean, the truth is, no matter what you do, sometimes, you know, things can be 
let's, let's, let's say we can lose our edge, okay? Even Christians can do that, can we not? You know, one time you're fired up and you're on fire and then, you know, you go through this period of time where you're almost even kind of bored with the Christian walk and you're just kind of bored with the prayer and the, and the Bible study and the community. I mean, let's be honest here, okay? Uh, we, we get that way. Those are dry times. And in those dry times, what Jude is saying is that these apostates, the world comes along and makes promises to you. Mm. The world says, you know what? We've got this shiny object here, and if you'll just come and chase after this shiny object, it's going to be everything that you want in life. Look at this. You're bored to tears right now. You're, you're dry as a bone, but I'm a cloud, and I've got water, and I'll water your life. And then what does that cloud do? It passes over, and there's no water. There's mm. no nourishment. Mm. It promises what it cannot produce. Remember this. I used to say this to, who, uh, to guys a lot. I haven't said it in year, long years. You know, one of the things that I've noticed as a pastor for all these four decades is that, you know, you get people that are just fired, on, uh, fired up, you know, like single people, and they're fired up for Jesus, and then a pair of pants walks by. And all of a sudden, that pair of pants is a whole lot more important than Jesus and the fellowship, and you don't see them anymore. Or a skirt walks by, and, and all of a sudden, this dude disappears. It's a shiny object out there that is being offered, and there's nothing wrong with a pair of pants or a skirt. What I'm saying I is... I mean, to be clear, you should be wearing yeah, pants, yeah, I'm not, right? I, right. I'm just, you know, I mean, you know, well, we do like for guys to wear the pants. Yeah, and women to wear the, right, I don't know. i got to be shut up before I get in trouble here. But this, illu- get, this illustration worked differently 20 years ago. Yeah, it you know. did. <laughs> It's a different world we live in. You could get away with stuff 20 years ago that you can't get away with now. So, but the point is, that's what Judas, this cloud comes along and you're dry and you're dusty and it promises you water. It can't give it. You will die on the vine. Isaiah 55, 10 seems to be, this seems to be an allusion to what Isaiah says. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but they water the earth making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the, to the eater. So shall, God says, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the very thing for which I sent it. What God is saying is I'm not an empty cloud. I'm not a jagged rock. You can come to me and stay with me, and I will save you, and I will give nourishment. Don't be chasing after those empty clouds of the world. And then the third illustration from nature. They are dead like fruitless trees. Look at the end of verse 12. He says, they are fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted. In the agricultural world, trees primary purpose was to bear fruit. That's why you would plant them. They would bear fruit in the beginning of fruit-bearing season. Sometimes they would not begin to bear fruit right away. Sometimes it would be later into the fruit-bearing season. They would call these, this is literally the etymology of this term, late bloomers. This is where we get this this concept from. That's kind of like you. Like me. Uh, Judah, wait, what? Judah's saying (laughs) these trees are past the point of fruit bearing. They still haven't borne any fruit. There's no sign that they will. They should have begun long ago. We've moved well past the time. Now we're in late autumn. There's still nothing on the vine. They're dead. Mm. They're worthless. They're useless. They have no ability or purpose for which they were designed. They look the part. They look good. They look Mm. full, but they don't produce anything. 
And so this answers, I think, this part of the passage answers a question that almost certainly many of you have or have had at some point, at least throughout this series, which is, how do I know who these apostate people really are? Right? I mean, we're talking about these apostate false teachers, and, and I, don't think it's, I don't think Jude even has only in mind false teachers. I, I think he's talking about any Christian who is teaching other Christians to walk away from the doctrines, whether that be an official teacher or just a church member. How do you know who they are? They're, they're at your love feast. They're in your midst. They're like rocks that are going to shipwreck you. They've made shipwreck of their own faith. They're dry clouds. They were to contend with them, but who are they? How do we know who these people are? And sometimes that question is answered easy. Uh, sometimes they outright deny the faith. They deny the basic doctrines of Scripture. They're, they're very forthcoming about that. And, and you can be sure that they are apostate based on that. But, but what about the ones who are a bit more deceptive? The ones who are, are not outwardly broadcasting their false hmm. teachings and their false beliefs. Perhaps some that are not even consciously aware that they are rejecting the truth of God at that point in their life. How do you know who these people are? And I think Jude's description here is important as fruitless trees because he's telling something about the way we can evaluate other people in our lives. If they are fruitless, if they do not bear the fruit that they are meant to bear, they are dead inwardly. That's what Jude is getting at. And the lack of fruit as proof for a lack of faith is consistent all throughout the Scripture. Psalm chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. The psalmist says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. This is the guy who is not the apostate. He values the Word of God. He yeah. treasures the Word of God. And look what verse 3 says. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. You see, when you value God's word, when you are genuinely born again, you will bear fruit. Jesus carries this fruit-bearing imagery on in his own teaching. John 15, 5, he says, I am the vine and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. He goes on to say in John 15, 16, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that what? You should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. Paul takes it. Colossians 1, 10, walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. We learn of the fruit of the spirit in Galatians chapter 5. Listen, I don't, I don't know who is apostate and, and who isn't. I really don't. I, don't. I don't know your heart. God knows your heart. I don't. But I do know that time and truth walk hand in hand. And I do know this, that when someone asks, how do I know if someone is apostate or not, a good place to begin is examining the fruit. Does the person have fruit in their life? Scripture is crystal clear. If you are born again in Jesus Christ, you will bear fruit. It's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. It may not be at the beginning of fruit-bearing season. You may bear a tiny little amount of fruit in the very beginning of your With faith. worms, maybe sometimes. A little bit of worms in the fruit. <laughs> but there will be fruit. There will be fruit. And Judah's saying, those who do not have fruit, who have, have borne no fruit, they are dead. And then notice he calls them twice dead. Why does yeah. he do that? Wow. Because eventually they're going to be uprooted. They didn't bear fruit while they were in the ground. They're certainly not going to bear fruit when they are out of the ground. And then the question obviously becomes, when does that happen? It happens at judgment. Jesus tells the parable of the wheat and the tares that James mm. mentioned a moment ago, where the farmer goes out and he sows seed in his field. 
And then when he is asleep, the enemy comes and he sows bad seed among the good seed so that when harvest comes, both the wheat and the tares are together in the field. And if you know anything about wheat and tares, they look almost identical, except for the tare is empty. There's nothing inside. There's There's no no fruit. fruit. There's no no fruit. fruit. And and, and the farmer's servants even come and they say, do you want us to come out and and tear the tares out? And the farmer says, no, because you won't know the difference. Mm -hmm. You won't know who to pull out and who to leave in. And then he gives his explanation. This is in Matthew 13, verses 37 through 43. He says, the one who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world, and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. That's the Christians. The weeds are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. So Jesus is sowing seeds. The devil is sowing seeds in the world. There are Christians. There are non-Christians. And they are indistinguishable except for the fact that some bear fruit and some don't. And it says that in the end, the reapers will come who are angels. And just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. And in that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. He is saying these apostate people, they're like dead trees because they bear no fruit. They look like they should, but they don't. And one day... They're going to be uprooted and thrown into the fire. They're dead now. They're going to die again. I heard it once said that you can either be born once and die twice, or you can be born twice and die once. Christians Christians are born twice. We're born physically, and we're born physically. We only die once. We only die physically. We will not die spiritually. These apostate people, they're only born one time physically. They will die twice, both Mm -hmm. physically and spiritually. They're dead like fruitless trees. Fourth, they're dangerous like rogue waves. As you were talking, I thought about two things. You know, Jude was the half-brother of Jesus. Yep. Okay? As James was the half-brother of Jesus. They were both born after Jesus by Mary and Joseph. Uh, So Joseph was not Jesus' biological father. The Holy Spirit was. But they were their half-brothers. And they didn't believe in Jesus while he was Was on on earth. earth. But they all heard him teach. They heard him teach. They heard him teach. And I'll guarantee you, how many times did Jude hear Jesus use that vine in the branches oh, yeah. thing? And about the, the tree that is fruitless. Yep. And he's using that analogy here. Paul worked off of that often. In fact, he said to the Corinthian church, examine yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Mm-hmm. In other words, take your own inventory. Don't take somebody else's inventory. Take your own. Look, examine yourself to see if you're, what are you going to know? Is there fruit in my life? Is there fruit of the nature of Christ? Is there, is there a desire for him? Is, there, is my character being transformed? Examine yourself to and, see if you're in the faith. And listen, I cannot overemphasize this enough. It, it may be that there's one tiny little apple on your tree, okay? And, and you may be looking at your life and going, oh, man, I don't, know if, I don't know if God loves me. I don't know if I'm a born-again believer or not. And, and, but there's this one area where God's working on your life. That's fruit. That's fruit. Water, water yourself. Fertilize yourself. Yeah. Get more yeah. fruit. So I don't, I don't want to freak you out going, well, I don't have a garden in my life. Well, you may not have a garden right now. And do some pruning. And do some pruning. You know, Absolutely. In, in, the, in the great vine and branches passage, what does Jesus say? He talks about pruning. Cutting away the dead. Cut away the dead. Cut away the dead so that the life can come. That's right. But he says an apostate is not going to show that over their long course of their life. So examine yourself to see if you're genuinely in the faith. And I love this fourth one. He says these apostates in your midst that are making all of these promises to you, if you abandon the faith and follow them, he said they're they're dangerous like rogue 
waves. I love this because I love the sea. In 1978, two weeks before Christmas, the MS München, which was a German cargo ship, was in the North Atlantic and absolutely flat, totally disappeared. This was not a rowboat. This ship was 850 feet long, almost the length of three football fields. It was in some rough seas, and there had been reports of rough seas and storms, but no problem for a ship that's 850 feet long. But eventually, when it disappeared, all that was found from that ship was four lifeboats, three shipping containers, because it was a cargo ship and had shipping containers on it, and a few flotation devices. The ship had completely disappeared. And the investigators were totally stumped about what could take down that ship until they found one of the lifeboats that, was, that remained was, had been bolted 65 feet above the waterline. It was way up there. And it had literally been ripped loose from its bolting and its, its, uh, its fastening on the big mast of that ship. And so the only explanation the investigators could come up with was a rogue wave. Have you ever heard the term rogue wave? Rogue waves are those waves that mariners have always known about, but we don't know much about because people don't usually survive them is that in a stormy sea that would normally be rough but would not be devastating, these rogue waves come out of nowhere. They don't even really know why they happen, but they can be three and four times the height of the 12 to 15-foot normal wave that a ship 850 feet could go through with no problem. But they come out of nowhere, and they broadside a ship, and they capsize it, and it's gone. And they, they assumed then that a rogue wave must have come, and with its power, it caught that, that lifeboat and literally ripped the bolting off, and without that lifeboat, they would have never understood. I can remember in 1982, I went to Fort Lauderdale, Florida for my first pastorate in 1981 when I graduated from seminary. I was there for three years before I came back here in 1984. And in 1982, a friend of mine who had a boat, lived on, a, on a, a, a canal there in Fort Lauderdale. He was my diving buddy. He and I left Fort Lauderdale, Florida on a beautiful Friday afternoon, headed 55 miles across the open ocean to Bimini, Bahamas. You've heard of the famous Bimini, world-class fishing trips, beautiful aqua water, great diving, all kinds of stuff. It was a 22-foot Formula V with 400 horsepower on the back end of it, and it took us 55 miles across the open ocean from Fort Lauderdale to Bimini, Bahamas. The seas were flat as we were going over. We spent three days on the boat fishing, scuba diving, sleeping on the boat. I mean, it was Tom Sawyer and Huck Finn on the ocean. I'm telling you, we were just having a blast. On Sunday afternoon, I had somebody preach for me that Sunday morning. On Sunday afternoon, we headed back. We headed back from Bimini back to Fort Lauderdale. And for about the first 30 or 45 minutes, the seas were fairly calm. They began to increase a little bit, but nothing was real concerning. But it was within a matter of minutes, a matter of minutes, we were suddenly fighting for our lives in swales of 12 to 15 feet. We were in a 22-foot Formula V. And this guy was a master 
with handling this boat. And for hours, literally six solid hours, he would ride that throttle to keep us on the crest of a wave lest we go over it and be swamped in the the valley. And so he was jockeying that throttle over and over and over. We didn't get back to Fort Lauderdale till well, way after dark, hours past the time that our wives were expecting us. When we docked in Fort Lauderdale, my, my wife had already called the Coast Guard because she said they're lost at sea. Of course, the Coast Guard wasn't going to do anything for about 24 hours until they, our bodies floated up on the beach, and then, <laughs> then they'd, they'd figure it out. And on top of it all, we were in the Bermuda Triangle. When you go off of Fort Lauderdale, you're in the Bermuda Triangle. I lived in the Bermuda Triangle for three years, and I've often thought... That explains so much. <laughs> It really does, doesn't it? (laughs) There are usually things that can be pointed to to give an explanation of why we are the way we are. Anyway, I've often thought, what if we in that 22-foot boat had been hit by a rogue wave that took an 850-foot ship down and has taken many others down? We would have never been seen again. There would have been no evidence that we'd ever lived on this earth swallowed by the ocean. Now, folks, that's what Jude is referring to here. That's serious business. In verse 13, he refers to these apostates as wild waves of the sea. And as I said, ancient mariners were very familiar with the rogue wave concept. Just they didn't know a lot about them because nobody ever survived one. They just take you down. We've known they were there for centuries and centuries, but nobody knew much about them. Scientists still don't know much about them, but that's what an apostate is like. He said, if you do not contend for the faith, if you do not examine yourself, if you do not keep on the alert, they will come along like a rogue wave and they will wipe you out. Isaiah 57, verse 20 through 21, the prophet says, the wicked are like the tossing sea. For it cannot be quiet. It's loud. Its waters toss up mire and dirt. And there is no peace, says my God. You see, they promise peace, but they can never produce it. Mm. They promise peace and they they deliver perversity. They promise grace and deliver grief. They promise life and deliver death. They promise daylight, but deliver darkness. They promise hope, but only deliver hell. And Jude is saying to these Christ followers, watch out. They are dangerous. They're dry like an empty cloud. Yes, they're dead like a fruitless tree. And they are dangerous like a rogue wave. Do not take them for granted. And lastly, they are directionless like dying stars. Look at the last part of verse 13. It says, they are wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. In the ancient world, again... Stars were a major focal point for travelers because they provided a way for navigation. You could fix your direction upon a star because they were trustworthy. North Star is going to take you north, mm-hmm. right? Uh, certain constellations are always going to be in, in parts of the sky depending on the season you're in. People knew this. And, so and they could, follow a predictable pattern. They, and they follow a predictable pattern. So you know at all times if I'm going in this direction based on these stars, everything is going to be fine. But a wandering star? Now, uh, scholars debate over whether or not Jude meant a dying star or a planet, uh, a little unclear. Either way, it it is irrelevant. 
They're useless because they're unpredictable. They look like stars that can be trusted, but they take you places that you did not intend to go. Don't chart your life after that wandering star. No, because it will take you to a place you didn't intend to go. They're not fixed in one place. Jude is saying these false teachers are like that. They look like they should be trustworthy. They sound like they should be trustworthy. They will tell you what you want to hear, but they will take you places you never intended to go. Why? Because they don't belong to Jesus. That's right. And notice that it says, for whom the gloom of utter darkness is uh, reserved forever. Obviously, stars and the context of stars are in the dark night sky. So there's a little play here on what Jude is talking about with regard to wandering stars and the, dark, the darkness of the sky. But this same Greek construction, we've already seen once before in the letter of Jude. Do you remember where? That, that, that utter darkness, the gloom of utter darkness. Go all the way back to verse 6. Jude says, the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority but left their proper dwelling, talking about the, the fallen angels in Genesis chapter 7. He says, he has kept them in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. I mean, it just shows how masterful Jude was, carried along by the Holy Spirit, in writing this letter. There's a play off the night sky. He's talking about stars. But clearly, he intends to communicate something even darker than the sky. Jude is saying these false teachers end up in the same place that those angels are. The angels are already there, the ones that, that defied God's law, that stepped outside of their design and their purpose. They have been punished in eternal chains and the gloom of utter darkness, and one day these apostates will join them. Don't follow them. Don't follow them, because that's where they're headed, the gloom of utter darkness. You know, I, I want to end today by saying a couple of things. I, I, I think that we can sometimes be guilty of overemphasizing the present consequences of not contending for the faith. You know, one of the things that we, that has motivated James and I both in this series is seeing how a lack of truth, a lack of objective godly truth, and a, uh, an acceptance of subjective, postmodern, honestly just garbage, has taken our culture and our world into places that is not only indifferent towards God, but is actually hostile towards what God desires for And it's found people. its way into the church. And it's found its way into the From church. The inside. And so we, we, have, we have a lot of passion about equipping Christians to contend for the faith because the present consequences hmm. of what we face are very great. But this is what I want to I be very clear about. We never want to overemphasize the present consequences of rejecting God's truth at the expense of the eternal consequences mm -hmm. that follow. The, the imagery that Jude is using in this letter is extremely intentional and meaningful in communicating this. Twice dead, uprooted, fire, eternal chains, gloomy darkness. This, this is not talking about present consequences. Mm -hmm. This is not taught. Now, there are present consequences, and they're horrible, and real people are affected by them every day, and so we should be, we should be concerned with them. Again, I, we can always come back to you because it's a, a great example. The, the whole idea of abortion is something that is wildly celebrated in our world today. A million plus lives created in God's image are snuffed out before they are ever born. The present consequences are real. There's no question about that. The eternal consequences are far worse. Mm -hmm. They're far worse because they take these people to a place that is unimaginably awful. We spoke about two weeks ago 
in our intergenerational service with our student ministry, uh, which if you have not been to yet, it's the last Wednesday of every month, except for this month. It's going to be the, the 17th, not the 24th because of Thanksgiving, where we invite adults from any season, stage of life to come to the student ministry. Uh, I'm teaching. The lessons are, are uh, very oriented towards all ages. We talked about hell in October, the doctrine of hell, so, not something you hear a lot about in youth group. And we talked about it for that exact reason, because as little as churches want to talk about it, Jesus actually talked about it quite a bit. He talked about it more than heaven. He talked about it more than heaven, and and it's because it's a real place that real people end up in who buy into this ideology, this evil world scheme that is leading people into destruction. And when I say people, I mean a lot of people. Jesus said... Broad is the way that leads to destruction, and many will find it. Many of them, majority of them will find it. And so, yes, the present consequences are terrible. There's no doubt about it. The eternal consequences are far worse. And and so I, I, I I want to remind you that when we contend for the truth, don't do it thinking that you're gonna make the world a better place. Unless you're a post-millennial, which I doubt any of you are, the world gets a lot worse before Jesus comes back. The world is going to go under flames and be completely destroyed, and God is going to remake the heavens and the earth. This world is not getting better. It will not, and and there may be little revival moments that God has in in certain communities, and praise God when that happens, that's grace, but it's not, that's the exception, not the rule. We don't contend for truth so that our culture is better, or that our society is better, or to get back to the golden days. We do it. I wonder what those were. I, yeah, I'm still trying to figure it out. When we, I lived on a dirt road in a tin roof house right. as a child? Yeah. That, that, was that the golden, golden was that days? that the golden years? Yeah, yeah. right. Uh, don't do it for that. Do it because it might be your witness in contending for the truth that God uses to bring one of those people out of the domain of darkness and into the kingdom of his beloved son, Amen. as Paul says. Amen. In other words, contending for the faith, hear me when I say this, is primarily evangelistic. It is, because you are, maybe not for the person you're contending with, but for the people who have bought into the things that you're contending with, those apostate people who are leading blindly others to gloom and utter darkness. It may be your witness that snatches them out of the fire, which Jude is going to say here in the next couple of weeks. We'll get to that. I don't want to steal his thunder. You know, when, when we face false teaching, when we face apostasy, there are only two choices. You can either contend with that or you can conform to it. Yep. No, you, you, nobody stays neutral. No. When you face false teaching, when you, you either will contend with that or you will eventually be conformed to it. And, and that's what the Scripture says. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of the mind. That's why Derek and I don't make this a show on Sunday morning. And we have fun. We enjoy teaching. But this is about teaching. Teaching God's Word so that God's people can recognize fruitlessness and in themselves and in other people and contend for the faith. Because otherwise what happens is you get out there and, and you hear something, whether it be in the church or, or in the secular world. Well, he talks it, about Jesus, so yeah. he must be great. And it sounds good. He's packing up a stadium of 50,000 yeah, people, so he good. must be of God. And they want to make the world a better place. And you know what they're like? They're like hidden rocks that mean to sink you. They're like dry clouds that leave you dry. They're like fruitless trees 
that are dead on the inside. They're rogue like rogue waves. waves that will capsize you. They're like wandering stars that will take you in a direction you never wanted to go. They promise you something that they cannot deliver. So contend instead for the gospel that delivers everything it says, plus more than we could ever ask for. Amen? Amen. Pray with me. Father, thank you again. What a timely message. What a timely message from this little letter of Jude to remind us that there are things in the world, and there are things even, sadly, in the church that seem good, shiny objects that promise much and deliver nothing. I pray, God, that it would be a reminder to us to come back to the purity of the gospel, the focus of the gospel, which is your power to save all people who bow before you, God. You are worthy. We love you. We thank you. Even in the midst of, uh, of an uh, increasingly hostile world, God, we find peace in knowing you. Mm-hmm. And that is enough. I pray it would be enough for everyone in this room. And for those, God, who perhaps um, have been guilty of following these shiny objects, I pray that your Holy Spirit, in that, in that gentle and yet stern way, would, would break that in them and remind them to come back to the, the first love, God, you. We love you and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you. What a great.